Hi everyone, welcome to the Bunny Me Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, host and creator of this podcast. I'm very honored to have Helen Zia join me for the third episode of the fifth season theme, Our Becoming, an LGBTQ Asian experience. Helen is a longtime queer Asian American journalist, author, and activist. I first met her back in 2019 at a book talk in Chicago when she released her book, The Last Boat Out of Shanghai, which chronicles the survivor accounts from the Nanjing Massacre. I remember being very moved by experiences working with the survivors, and it certainly inspired me when I was working on the second season of the podcast. Helen's work in the API community stretches back for decades, most notably during the time of Vincent Chen's murder in a racial violent attack in 1982 in Detroit, Michigan. She and many APIA community members and leaders ignited movements nationally to call for justice and address the anti-Asian violence in the aftermath of Vincent's murder. Helen shares in this episode about the parallels between Vincent's murder and the current anti-Asian violence since COVID-19. We talk about the current Stop AAPI Hate movement, the issue of policing in the AAPI communities, and the recent passing of iconic Chinese-American photographer Corky Lee and the legacy he left behind. Find out more on this episode. To follow Helen Zia, please check her out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Helen Zia Rio, or her website at www.helenzia.com. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts and submit your review and feedback of the podcast. Thank you. So hello everyone, this is Randy from the Bunny Chronicles podcast. So today I am joined with Helen Zia. So Helen Zia is the daughter of immigrants from China. Helen has been outspoken on issues ranging from human rights to women's rights and countering hate violence and homophobia. She was featured in the Academy Award nominated documentary, Who Killed Vincent Chin? and was profiled in Bill Moyer's PBS series, Becoming American, The Chinese Experience. Helen received an Honorary Doctorate of Humane Letters from the University of San Francisco and an Honorary Doctorate of Laws from the City University of New York Law School for bringing important matters of law and civil rights into public view. She's a Fulbright Scholar and a graduate of Princeton University's first co-educational class. She attended medical school but quit after two years, then went to work as a construction laborer an auto worker, and a community organizer, after which she discovered her life's work as a writer. She would publish her debut book, Asian American Dreams, The Emergence of an American People in 2000. And in 2018, she released her book, Last Boat Out of Shanghai, the epic story of the Chinese who fled Mao's revolution, which recounts the survivor stories of the Nanjing massacre. So I first connected with you back when you were in Chicago during uh, the release of Last Boat Out of Shanghai. And I really enjoyed you sharing your experiences writing about the survivor accounts about the Nanjing Massacre, which happened during the World War II era. You shared important reminders of how to create space for survivors to share their stories. And I've done a number of episodes of, ch- of, uh, of with children whose parents fled the Vietnam after the Vietnam War and Cambodian genocide, and I often reference your discussion in my episodes. And on a separate note, you're also a good friend of Annie Tan, who happens to be the relative of Vincent Chen, who we'll talk more about. And I've been a huge fan of Annie, um, getting to know her for the past few years. And and I'm also very honored to have you on. And you've been, in a way, a godmother in the APIA movement and had spent decades fighting for LGBTQ 
Asian Pacific American rights and fighting for those more marginalized. So thank you so much for being on here on your very busy schedule and really making the time to talk. And how have you been doing during the time of the pandemic and and honoring API a Heritage Month? Oh, well, first, Randy, let me just say how good it is to reconnect with you again. I remember when you came to my book talk, you know, it seems like a, like a whole universe ago um, in 2019. And so here we are in 2021. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm of the age where I was told that, you know, <laughs> I'm decrepit and vulnerable health-wise. So like other baby boomers, you know, um, I pretty much uh, sheltered in place as much as possible. And uh, I did venture out a couple of times to join some of the protests, you know, even though I was um, trying to socially distance, uh, distance myself. But uh, I can't complain. I mean, it's a, you know, um, it's been so much harder for so many people. I have a roof over my head. I'm not worried about, um, you know, getting the next meal and so many people are, and I'm able to be, um, you know, socially distant, whereas a lot of people aren't. So when I think about all of the, uh, you know, people in our communities, the whole world really who are um, suffering so much, you know, how can I, how can I complain? But instead what I'm trying to do is, um, you know, do as much as I can from, you know, whether it's Zoom or using social media um, or whatever to, um, to still be an activist. So at least I can do that and try to do my share to, uh, uh, especially with this uh, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month to stand up and, um, and you know beat this thing back this this you know terrible time of anti-asian hate that's going on the uh you know way the pandemic is hurting our communities the uh you know homophobia and transphobia and just hate crimes in general that are that are going on and gender violence there's a there's a lot that every one of us can do so i'm just really trying to do what i can and i think well, given that vaccinations are now available, it does feel a little bit more hopeful than it was a year ago. However, in saying this, and you've actually just brought this up, is uh, since the pandemic, the anti-Asian violence has escalated, uh, especially this year, given what has happened in Atlanta and what happened in Indianapolis and in other places around the country where we see videos of Asian American women elders being attacked. And I can only imagine that what we are witnessing now takes you back from the time when you were involved in advocating for Vincent Chin's family after Vincent was murdered in an anti-Asian hate crime nearly 40 years ago in Detroit. What parallels can you draw from that period to now? Well, Randy, I mean, you hit it right on the you know, on the head that um, there are so many parallels between today and when a young Chinese American named Vincent Chin was killed during a whole period of uh, intense anti-Japanese hate that, you know, 
Asian Americans know that really people don't care about the fact that we're not all the same and pretty much lump us together. So, um, you know, Chinese American was killed during a time of, of anti-Japanese hate that morphed into anti-Asian hate and uh, he was Chinese American. And today we see that, you know, the Stop AAPI Hate um, reporting website, just one website in the whole country has, um, you know, reported more than 6,000, almost 7,000 incidents from the time it was created just a little more than a year ago. And so, you know, even before the um, intensity of the assaults, harassment, bullying, killings have gone on, um, I and, you know, a number of other people who are students of history, you know, just knew back in December 2019 that as soon as the coronavirus was identified in China, we, you know, it was obvious this is going to be bad. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in the 1980s, uh, when Vincent Chin was killed in 1982, uh, that was already the third year or so of a terrible economic crisis. You know, that was year three. Right now we are in, you know, the end of year one of a, of a global economic crisis. And what we know from history is that, you know, Vincent Chin was not the only um, or not the first case of anti-Asian hate and people being killed. There are just so many, so many episodes that we can point to, you know, whether we go back into the 1800s when there was ethnic cleansing, you know, what is ethnic cleansing? It's, it's identifying a whole group of people to be eliminated and killed. And so in the 1800s, there were massacres, lynchings. In fact, the largest mass group lynching took place in Los Angeles, but whole communities were rounded up. And not, you know, it started with the Chinese Exclusion Act targeting Chinese, but that was extended to um, all, you know, people from all parts of Asia, uh, including, you know, the subcontinent of India, people of Indian descent, people from the Philippines, people from, you know, just um, wherever in Asia their ancestry might have been, they were uh, to be eliminated from this country. And not. And if they couldn't be killed and eliminated, it was to bar them from ever becoming um, part of the American democracy, which meant not being able to vote, not being able to be part of the democratic process, run for office, not being able to appear in court if something happened, um, uh, you know, whereas uh, being witnessed or a, a crime. And all of those things really hurt our communities. Um, people, unfortunately, were attacked and killed at different times or, or rounded up, like in World War II, to be put in American concentration camps, not knowing whether they were going to be exterminated. You know, all of these things um, are part of our history. So when Vincent Chin was killed in 1982, we already knew that this was part of a pattern of how Asian Americans um, are blamed, targeted, scapegoated when the U.S. economy has a problem. You know, it's, it's um, you know, people in authority, they don't want to take responsibility. They're, they don't want to be accountable for things that might happen on their watch. So what do they do? They point to somebody else and blame it on them. 
and Asian Americans have been, you know, uh, the group that's blamed because we've also, as part of our, our, um, you know, the way we are un one-dimensionally viewed in America, the, the stereotypes of us are that we are the invader enemy, that we exist here only to harm America. And so when something goes wrong in this country, it's like, let's blame them. And so here we are today. And uh, not only do we have an economic crisis like, uh, you know, the 1980s and what happened to um, the auto industry when it collapsed, not because of Asia or Japan, it actually collapsed because of a global oil crisis back in the late 1970s and carried on into a, you know, a national recession that was a depression in the Midwest. Um, so we have, you know, an economic crisis today that nobody can predict when it's going to turn around. It's not just an American economic crisis, it's global. And I have to say that the hate and targeting of uh, Asian Americans uh, and Asian people, it's a global phenomenon. You know, it's not just limited to this continent. Uh, every continent of the globe, except for Antarctica, has had violent episodes and targeting people of Asian descent. And so we have that, and there's a pandemic. You know, people um, at this point, most people have probably, you know, not even one degree of separation from knowing somebody who has had the virus, who has suffered, and likely people who have passed away. And so um, when you have all of that in combination, I think we are at a, actually a, a time that is even far more um, dangerous, volatile, and, and racist than even the 1980s when Vincent Shin was killed. So there are similarities and there are these differences that actually make it worse. And also with the pandemic and, and, and how this has exacerbated the anti-Asian violence, specifically when we look at what happened in Atlanta and also with elders, you are of the age as an Asian American elder woman who I know watching these videos or being a being hearing the news about it. How do you think this has actually affected your life when you are out in public and also among your own colleagues? Because I know this cannot be a very I'm trying to put this into better words because as an Asian man, I have more privileges of not having to worry constantly. But I also know that recently uh, a young Asian American man was stabbed to death. And the other day, my mom thought about wanting to visit family members and she's disabled and she's elderly down in Alabama. And I had to push back and say, I don't know if this is a good idea. So I've seen mm -hmm. many of my peers who I've had so many conversations with just wondering what to do with their parents and with themselves too, uh, for that matter. And I wonder about for your own concern of your own safety and how has this in a way affected you? Yeah, well, thank you for that question, Randy. I, I, I have to say that, you know, I've been a journalist, I've been an activist. So that means I've been in situations that have not always been safe. Um, you know, I 
have covered a lot of hate crimes, talked to a lot of people who have lost loved ones in those um, you know, criminal acts. And all of that has, you know, way before this made me hyper aware. Some people might call it paranoid. I call it just let's be realistic, you know, that things happen. And so um, so I try to be very aware. I've always said, you know, actually told my wife, you know, often when we've been in a in a, a public transportation area, never stand close to the you know, edge of the platform ever, you know, know who, know what's behind you. And if you can place yourself in a way not to um, have somebody creep up on you, the way that two women in San Francisco were attacked from behind with a guy who had a knife, um, all of those things. But now I, I think I'm hypervigilant. I'm, I still don't, you know, just kind of wander around cities or go to places, um, um, you know, the way that I normally would have. But when I go out now, you know, I go for a walk. I, I think about, gee, should I carry an umbrella or, you know, something basically like a stick in case, um, in case something happens. I have friends who have given me uh, pepper gel and we've had discussions about pepper gel being better than pepper spray because depending on how the wind is blowing, uh, the pepper spray can you know, um, go into your face. Mm-hmm. I don't carry uh, weapons, you know, um, firearms. However, you know, I do know in the Asian American community that the firearm purchasing is like way off the charts. I have to say that we know from um, records, not just about Asian Americans, but the odds are if you have a handgun that, you know, you might be hurt by that handgun that you have. So, um, and I worry about that. I worry, I really worry for the Asian Americans who, who might be walking around carrying now um, on two fronts that they may be hurt by that. And also I don't wanna see a repeat of what happened in Los Angeles in you know 1992 when a, a korean storekeeper you know shot and killed a um teenage you know teenage uh, black girl who latasha harlins and that kind of hostility that has festered and that's what we're seeing now it's to me the you know what happened in la with with uh, rodney king and how the police officers who beat him so severely were, um, you know, let off the hook. And, you know, the frustration and anger then was taken out on the Asian American community, especially the Korean American community, but not just Koreans, you know, just like today, you know, it's not just Chinese. So I feel worried for our community about those things. Um, For myself, I just feel like I'm more vigilant and aware than ever before. And, uh, and I think twice about where I'm gonna go and how I need to prepare for that. Um, but I do think that we can't just um, let our fears overwhelm us. You know, we have to turn our fear into, our fear and concern into action. We have to do things about this. That's what happened in the 1980s with the Vincent Chin case, people got mobilized. You know, Vincent Chin could have been any Asian American, 
you know, and sadly it was Vincent Chin, but everybody came together and said, we have to do something about this. We have to show that this is wrong and that we will not tolerate this. And so for today, it could be any, any yellow or brown Asian American person who could just be in the wrong place when a, you know, a mass killer shows up with their uh, semi-automatic or automatic weapon. And so we have to do something about that. Uh, yes, we have to call on our public officials and our, our people who are in our um, beloved communities who are not Asian American. We really have to reach out and do everything we can to, um, you know, to squelch this thing. Um, you know, so I know from history that it's not going to go away like overnight, but what will really help it and help our communities is to take action. Hiding out is not the solution. You know, we, we actually have to do as much as we can to speak up, to be organized, to reach out. You know, I applaud uh, Senator Maisie Hirono and Congress um, persons, Tammy Duckworth and Grace Meng for, you know, pushing through that, um, you know, at least through the Senate so far, and it looks like it's gonna go through the house, you know, a, a, a bill to, to at least acknowledge the fact that this anti-Asian hate, COVID-related hate is, is just fulminating right now. And to say, hey, federal government and local governments, you gotta pay attention to this. Now, it doesn't go far enough, you know, but it's a beginning. And it, it's saying we have, to, we have to be counted. We have to count these things. We have to do something about it. We have to have public education. And so all of those things are, you know, steps that have to be taken, but it's all about organizing and, and, and not just sitting by and, and thinking, okay, we have to really hunker down and create our own bunker because that's just not gonna work. People have to go to work. Kids are gonna be going to school. All of those are points of vulnerability. And so how do we make our communities safe and how do we fight back? I mean, you know, that's, that's what it is. It's fighting back against all this stuff and letting people know that we Asian Americans are not gonna just, you know, um, sit by and let these things happen. We can't. I wanted to ask you, um, so what did you notice about the Asian American movements prior to Vincent's murder? And how do you think his death shaped up the current Asian American movement? So there has been an evolution. I mean, you know, we're talking 1980s when Vincent Chin was killed. But prior to that, there was an Asian American movement really uh, coming out of the, the civil rights and student movements of the 1960s. I mean, that was when the, even the word Asian American was coined. You know, this, this was actually from the Bay Area where, where I am right now. But uh, San Francisco State University and um, University of California at Berkeley were having, you know, student strikes. And there were a lot of organizers back then who, you know, and, and they were called third world strikes. It was it basically assumed that there would be unity. You know, people expected unity of, of, of uh, black, brown, yellow, red um, communities to speak up together, which I have to say right now, uh, is not so much the case. It's not, it's not understood by all that we must be together, which I think is, is a part of the, 
the a concerted effort to keep us divided. You know, because if people of color all came together today in, you know, in several states, we are already the majority. And if we join together with other people of conscience, you know, women who are part of the Me Too movement, we are the majority. And so I think we've gone through decades of, of um, you know, very deliberate steps on, you know, um, P, you know, that with a lot of money behind them to try to divide us including for, you know, manipulation of Asian Americans, like with the uh, affirmative action and using us as a wedge against black people, which makes black people and the black, you know, um, Black Lives Matter movement, for example, people might not, you know, trust Asian Americans like, oh, okay, you know, um, uh, with the assumption that, oh, well, you're really not for black people in affirmative action. And so can we really trust you to fight for Black Lives Matter. Well, all of that is part of the poison that people have been forced to consume in these past few decades. You know, and so when you ask about the evolution of the Asian American movement, you know, back when it began, you know, in the late 1960s, um, there was a time when people said, well, then how will Asians show up? I'm Chinese, you're Japanese, and what about Filipinos? And what about, you know, Southeast Asian folks and Indian, uh, you know, uh, uh, people from South Asia? And out of that Asian American movement, then people said, let's call ourselves Asian Americans. And that was the Asian American movement. That was the beginning of giving ourselves a name to um, really have a pan-Asian um, movement. And that gave us a voice, knowing that we were much stronger if we were together, if we were together as Asian Americans, and then if we joined together with Black and Brown people, as well as other people of conscience, you know, to make these big movements against the war in Southeast Asia, for civil rights, for women's liberation, for, for gay liberation, all these things. And um, that was largely a youth movement. A lot of our movements today, you know, especially with the pandemic are being led by younger generations. And us OG, you know, baby boomers have to step aside. I mean, partly because of the pandemic, but it's really great to see the movements that are happening today. Um, the thing about it is, is uh, what happened in time is that the Asian American consciousness grew. I mean, our communities still are majority immigrant communities. And when people arrive in one location from another country or culture, they identify more with that culture. So, you know, among the older generation of immigrants, you know, they may not identify as Asian America. Nobody in Asia calls themselves Asian. They call themselves whatever country or region or culture that they identify with there. And so for our immigrant and refugee population, that is still how the, the you know, non-US born um, folks who are Americans, how they might view themselves mm. and more identify with their ethnic group or religion or whatever. Um, however, 30% and growing are um, of the Asian American community are born here, or maybe one point, you know, X generation. They might have come here as as children, 
you know, as immigrants. And so among those who were born here or came as one point Xers, um, there really is much more of a, of a Pan-Asian sense, seeing that, you know what, I identify as Asian American because even though um, right now the hate is directed, you know, it's, it's like all anti-China, China, China is the cause of everything bad that's going on in America. It doesn't matter whether you're Chinese or not, you know, um, as you pointed out, look at what happened to in Indianapolis where the, you know, the killer was targeting Sikh Americans. They don't look Chinese, but it, it sort of doesn't matter. This um, virus of hate has really seeped out in so many different directions. So uh, any person of Asian descent is a target. So I think it, that's a real kind of a wake up call for, you know, everybody who is of Asian descent in America, whether they're immigrants, refugees, or born here to, to know. I mean, people know they have to be on high alert too when they're out, out and about and, uh, or getting ready to send their kids to school. So this is a concern for everybody. And so that's part of the evolution of this concept of being Asian American, you know, that this isn't just one ethnicity of Asians, it's really all of us. And we can do so much more if we all come together and raise our voices. Thank you so much for sharing this, Helen. And as we see more people in the Asian American communities being galvanized to speak up, take action, there's also a conflict which you uh, in a way bring up here. Uh, there's a conflict of what approaches there should be to address anti-Asian violence, specifically with police presence. Uh, we see a number of folks within our community that are calling for law enforcement. There's also a number of those that do not believe in pro-policing solutions, and for good reasons. When you think about anti-Asian violence, police have also contributed to this problem. And giving an example, Christian Hall and Angelo Quinto, two Asian men who were murdered in the middle of a mental health crisis, or the way the police chief in Georgia responded to the Atlanta white gunman saying that he had a bad day after gunning down eight people, including six Asian women. And that the idea of police surveillance can further create divisions with black and brown and other Asian communities that have already been heavily policed and profiled. So what do you see as the best opportunity to address these issues during these very volatile times? And and, and an opportunity to bring about transform transformational changes. Well, Randy, you you know this is a, a huge issue right now, and and as a society, you know America, um, you know we're even hearing police chiefs say that they want to address systemic racism. You know I, that's something I had never I, I thought I would hear, you know, in my lifetime. But so okay. So that's an opening. And, you know, especially the um, police killings of, of black people in this society and the, and the Black Lives Matter movement has really forced this discussion out into the open. And the anti-Asian hate is also galvanizing the Asian community to, you know, join in on these conversations. So I, I don't think it's simple at all. You know, if we could wave a wand and talk about a revolution that would end white supremacy, which of which law enforcement is a part of, that would um, be one way of addressing it. But 
I, you know, as, as somebody of the OG generation, I, you know, so far in my lifetime, I have not seen a successful revolution somewhere. And so number one, I think we cannot throw our communities under the bus. You know, our, our family members, our communities are under siege. And so safety is a concern. I'm speaking about Asian Americans here, but I could also say that about uh, black community, Latinx communities, you know, um, uh, poor communities all over the country, you know, um, for all the po for all the policing that's done, they are not getting protected. And so that's where a lot of the um, crime and harm takes place. So I do not, um, I have not heard proposals about abolish that I um, can really sign on to. I really believe about demilitarizing. I think police militarization has gone way out of hand. Uh, and I also think people who want to abolish, I, I, I really want to hear them. What would you say to George Floyd's family? What would you say to um, uh, Breonna Taylor's family who have used the court system to try to get accountability and to prosecute the police officers who killed their families. And so, you know, some of the conversation that says that that's killed their family members. And so some of the conversation that says, you know, abolish overall, you know, well, what about these laws? You know, to me, it's let's hold the accountability. Um, and you made a very good point about how law enforcement around hate crimes, you know, to me, one of the biggest problems with hate crimes protections laws is that they are enforced by police. And so in many cases, and we saw that in Atlanta, the police on the ground, well, hey, the guy saying that um, the killer had a bad day and it has nothing to do with race. He also, you know, is a MAGA supporter. And so, yeah, that's a problem because they're the ones on the ground who, who when a, a, an attack that might be uh, racially motivated, homophobic or transphobic or anti-immigrant or you know, um, anti-Muslim uh, or anti-Semitic or any of the protected classes you know, that hate crimes laws are you know, sort of constructed in a, in a very um, specific defined way. You know, the people who call the shots on those, they are the law enforcement on the ground and the uh, criminal justice you know, prosecution. And unfortunately, we have seen too many examples that sometimes they are racist too. And these laws have problems because of that. I think those are problems that can be addressed, you know, that have to be addressed. We, we need to talk about this, but that doesn't mean that we get rid of hate crimes law, hate crime protection laws, which some people have, um, have called for too as part of the, uh, you know, abolish. And um, the other part of that is if we're going to remember and take lessons from the Vincent Chin case, for example, or any number of other hate crimes that have taken place, hate killings of Asian Americans, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them. You know, it's just that people have paid no attention to this outside of the Asian American community. Um, but out of the Vincent Chin case, 
the Vincent Chin case was very, um, you know, very much a part of developing the whole notion of hate crimes that the killers of Vincent Chin killed him out of, out of, you know, they singled him out because he looked Japanese. And so, you know, that hate, that division is part of white supremacy, keeping people, um, you know, divided against each other, fomenting hate and uh, targeting people because of who they look or who they love or any of those things or where they were born, you know, that's part of white supremacy too. And so the hate crimes protections movement, the Vincent Chin case was part of that. That was that established that Asian Americans could be protected by federal civil rights law. And it also established that immigrants could be protected by federal civil rights law. And so I'm just astonished by people within our community, well-meaning activist people in our communities who don't know that, who really don't understand how Asian Americans were, were actually told back then that uh, we're not protected because we weren't around in the 1800s when those laws were created, which was A, not true, but in a way being used again. We were told that, uh, you know, if, if, if we stand up for Asian Americans to like Vincent Chin to be protected by federal civil rights law, that will enhance, you know, add to the, um, you know, minimum a mandatory sentencing movement, which would be part of the carceral system. So if you want to fight the carceral system that puts people in jail, we cannot support Asian Americans being protected by federal civil rights law. I mean, you know, this conversation is happening today. It happened 39 years ago when, you know, the movement to get justice for Vincent Chin took place and it's still happening. And what I find is that a lot of our own activists, very incredible people who I really, you know, respect the work that they're doing, but they don't have the context. And so, so I think when we talk about what must be done to turn all of this around, we have to understand the connection to white supremacy, the understanding of where Asian Americans fit in all, you know, how we're being used by this, as well as not trusted as because we're supposedly, you know, uh, 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 think that we all think that we're white or that we're white adjacent. And so therefore not trustworthy. Well, that only feeds the other not trustworthy part because we are forever foreign. So, um, so there's a lot to unpack in all of this, I guess what I would say, you know, you're asking a very important question, but I think, I think we have to address it in a big way and look at the overall context. Otherwise, all we're doing is, is, um, um, you know, taking things piecemeal. And I also want to point out that, you know, and I don't have the full language of it, especially with abolishing uh, police. And there's also part of the, the idea of abolishing or defunding or divesting is to take the, the power of police away from mental health crises in uh, the way that they are in schools and in the way that they are policing black and brown communities. And so I think what you bring up here is it is very complex because 
there are folks in our community and also even within black and brown or latinx communities that want to feel safe and believe that law enforcement and would criminal uh, justice reform police reform would be the solution and on the other hand i don't want to spend too much time to, uh, to respect your time but i also know that there is cause for divesting and finding ways to invest in other programs like social workers um, investing in other community safety protocols that do not uh, already target a very marginal uh, that already do not target vulnerable yeah. communities so it Randy, is can i can i just say too uh, while i do think we you know have so neglected the mental health uh you know systems and addressing um you know, or criminalizing people who actually really are in need of mental health programs. We also know that the mental health programs are not, you know, as long as we have racism um, and sexism and, you know, that we are poisoned by these um, systems of oppression, they also exist in the mental health system. I mean, we know that, you know, look at all of the, the, the um, uh, pathologizing of people who are, who are gay, queer people, you know, around the world, the mental health systems, you know, have been used very much against people as well. And, um, you know, the deprogramming or the, you know, uh, uh, all of that kind of stuff of, you know, tar that targeted people who were queer, you know, over time. Um, you know, we also have to look at, uh, you know, are we just going to say, okay, mental health system, now you do it. Here's all this money. I want to know. Right. Is the mental health system, you know, going to be a different kind of mental health system that's then has been used in the past too? You know, um, there are just so many, so many stories and examples of abuses that have happened, not just to queer people, but also, you know, to to uh, uh, kids who tra oh well trans folks uh, absolutely that's going on right now, yeah. but also uh, you know kids who are um, you know in the foster care system. Or um, you know, homeless people. I mean, you know, so it's a big question. You know, it really is about you know how do we change society as a whole. Thank you for sharing this, and and also to um, to switch gears. Uh, your friend Corky Lee uh, was a fixture in the NYC Chinatown community for years, and he's he was a photographer who had documented many of the Asian American movements. He recently died of COVID this year, and uh, I know that you have been very closely connected with him throughout the years. And what can you share about your memories of Corky and the legacy that he created through his work? You know, part of the problem of the Asian American community is how invisible we have been, how that's been enforced upon us, this invisibility. Corky made us visible. Corky had spent a lifetime being out there, showing just that the, um, the lives, everyday lives and humanity of Asian Americans of all different backgrounds, of all communities, as well as being there when people were speaking up and resisting and organizing and doing things to change, you know, the, the situation or the racism or the all of the things that our communities experience. So, um, you know, Corky was one of a kind. 
I met him when I was in college. I, he wasn't much older than me, just a couple of years older. And he was already out there with his camera capturing, you know, um, capturing the communities that nobody else saw. And because of Corky, there is an incredible, incredible body of work to, 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 you know, tell the stories and the humanity of our communities. Um, um, he's, you know, going to be greatly missed by our communities. I miss Corky, you know, and, uh, but I have to say one of the things Corky did was he always looked to mentor other, you know, photographers, activists, people who wanted to, you know, be part of, 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 um, you know, making change in our communities, bringing us into visibility. And so, you know, he was always there helping, you know, young photographers who were looking to, to sort of follow, you know, what he was doing, telling the stories with their cameras. And so he, he generously did that. Um, and there are generations of photographers, Asian American photographers who, who are, you know, following the, the, the path that, that Corky carved out and uh, not just photographers, but really, you know, um, anybody who was, you know, willing to, to learn from Corky, he was willing to share. So, um, yeah, we need more Corky Lees. Yeah, and I'm glad that you bring up uh, when, he's, when you mentioned he was there to mentor. And, and I can only imagine what will come out of his legacy. I, uh, what is passing, it was just so beautiful, the number of tributes uh, of Corky and how he, his work has left such an impact on all of us. I mean, looking at all these photos that he's contributed, I think my favorite one was the, uh, the descendants of the Chinese railroad workers. And it's, it hangs on the uh, Chinese American Museum up in Chicago. And I remember the exhibit was there about maybe two years ago. And it's just so powerful, the reclaiming of our narratives, and Corky does it so beautifully. And I hope that people get to uh, view his work. And unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but his his legacy continues on. And I hope that there will be photographers, journalists, content creators who will continue to uh, carry forth the history of the Asian American communities here, but also documenting them. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, as you point out, I mean, that photo, Corky was, I mean, his activism through his camera was, um, you know, taking what had been rendered invisible, you know, from the uh, 1800s and the joining of the Continental uh, Transcontinental Railroad that deliberately kept those Asian American, Chinese American workers who built the hardest part of the railroad, kept them out of the picture. Corky said, yeah. let's change that. Let's put our communities in the picture. And he organized, you know, that photo showing, you know, a hundred years later, Asian Americans, you know, at the, you know, um, at the site of where the golden spike was there. And then that became a tradition, you know, of, of capturing that in the, what was it? The 150th in a, uh, you know, year recognition. 
And Corky was there to take that picture too. But that's the part about, that's the activism of just making ourselves visible. What you do, Randy, with your podcast and your, that's all about telling our stories that have been what I call MIH, missing in history. And it's not an accident, it's deliberate. And the, the, what we must do is bring our stories to the, to the front. And Corky did that by making these pictures visible, putting us in the picture. With that said, I think you've actually answered my next question is, and before, you, before we start wrapping up, what can you say to any Asian person who's thinking about how to speak out or contribute to the anti-racism and the, the stop Asian American hate uh, work in this climate? Well, there's so many things that every one of us can do. You know, knowledge is power. And the invisibility that we've had also has deprived us of knowledge. I mean, you know, um, most Americans, if they had any information about Asian Americans, K through 12, and even through, you know, university, if they went to uh, for higher education, got almost nothing about Asian Americans. If they got anything, it was that there was this railroad and some Chinese people helped make that happen or that Japanese Americans were incarcerated during World War II and that's it. And nothing more about it, just those words, that's it. You know, nothing about the true lives about people. And the thing about it is we Asian Americans also, for the most part, were part of the same educational, you know, um, insufficient educational system. So many Asian Americans don't know our own stories either. And, and what that means is they don't know the stories of what they can do, what Asian Americans have done before. And, uh, you know, they might think, oh, well, it's gotta be like, I gotta be out there like protesting. I gotta be like standing up and giving a speech with a bullhorn or something like that. No, there are so many things everybody can do you know, if you can do that, great. You know, we need organizers, we need activists. Um, but, you know, nobody's born with a bullhorn in their hands. And, you know, for me, for example, when I was a kid, I was, you know, the quiet Asian kid. I would, yeah, I could talk, but the thing was, I didn't have any examples, any role models to show me like, oh, this is how an Asian American can speak up about racism. Those were things that I had to learn through the Asian American movement. And I remember the first time I ever had to speak up in public and I was terrified, you know, but the thing about it is after I did it, I learned, hey, I didn't, I didn't, the earth didn't open up and I didn't fall in it and I didn't die and I didn't throw up in front of everybody. And, and so, you know, it's, it's really one step at a time. And so that might mean, you know, creating your own, you know, on your social media, just some little stories that you tell, you know, not just, you know, birthdays and stuff like that. That's great. But also telling the stories of your community. Everybody with a smartphone can do this. Um, being engaged, you know, meaning not married engaged, <laughs> you know, I'm being engaged with you know, the world around you. And that might mean sending an email. I mean, you know, how hard is that? Sending an email to a public official to tell them, you know, pass the hate crimes, you know, anti-Asian law. 
I care about this and I vote or being part of, you know, we saw a lot of people, especially a lot of youth involved in, you know, getting Asian Americans registered to vote, um, all of that stuff in the last um, election cycle. Well, we still need that. Um, we still need to make sure that all these anti-voter, uh, you know, activities that are going on aren't, aren't going to end up disenfranchising our communities. You know, um, just, there's just so many things. And also just even having a talk in your own family or your own community or your church or your, you know, um, uh, campus or form a, an employee affinity group in your workplace and hold your community officials, you know, your elected officials accountable. You know, what are your school board people doing about the coming opening up of schools and having children protected? And, and we know that the bullying of Asian American kids, which also is two to one Asian American girls, the bullying is being done by adults. And so, and what we've seen over and over again, you know, um, is that nobody intervenes. You know, other adults, they don't even stop it. And all of these reports of the attacks, the assaults, the knifings, the things like that, the most hurtful thing that comes out of those stories is, yeah, and nobody else spoke up. Nobody else said anything. You know, that picture of the, the security guards in, you know, Times Square, mm -hmm. the, you know, the Filipina who was on her way to church, who's getting her head kicked in by this guy, they closed the door. And that is what every one of us can have talks in our communities with the people who we know, the people we trust, the people, our coworkers, you know, our neighbors to say, hey, we need you. If you see something, here's, you know, go to the bystander training thing. There are things you can do, but don't just do nothing because doing nothing just reinforces the white supremacy and helps the people who are doing these attacks. So, um, but, you know, the thing I was saying, having these talks, with it, you know, black families have had to have the talk for, you know, for so long when, about telling their kids what to do if for no good reason a, a cop stops you, you know, whether it's for something about traffic or just, you know, in general. So Asian American families have to start having the talk in our families. You know, I see so many reports of people saying, oh, I was so surprised. I didn't know what to do. I was so surprised. And so here we are, you know, more than a year later and more than 7,000, you know, six, almost 7,000 reports to one website. Um, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't let yourself be caught off guard and tell your families, your children, talk about these things. And if you don't know why these things are happening, learn. So we all have that capability. Knowledge is power. You know, we have been deprived of that knowledge. Don't let your children be deprived of that knowledge. Um, learn about our Asian American uh, beautiful heritage, but also learn about how Asian Americans have stood up and what they have done and how you can and your families can too. So all of those things are, you know, things every one of us can do and every one of us has to do. Beautifully, beautifully said. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your advice. 
and also just sharing your history and the work that you've been doing. It's uh, it's such an honor to have this conversation with you, and I hope that listeners can gain so much insight from this conversation and be and be galvanized to take certain actions, whether it's with their own family, with their own community, online. There's so many nonlinear ways to go about it. And I want to thank you so much for addressing this and, and for really taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this. Once again, you continue to be an inspiration to myself and to so many uh, Asian Americans, uh, young, old, and and anywhere, anywhere in the middle. And so thank you so much, Helen. I really appreciate this conversation. And best luck to you for the rest of this year. And I look forward to seeing what you have in store for us. Well, thank you, Randy. Thank you for inviting me to be part of your podcast. I'm, I'm an admirer of you and the work you're doing. And, uh, you know, we need more Randy Kims out there oh. doing this kind of stuff, too. So, uh, you know, you. it's an honor to join you. And, and thank you for all of your work. Thank you. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening and be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on the Bunby Chronicles on Facebook, or you can follow me on Instagram at Bunby underscore Chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Mm-hmm.